So, uh, for those listening on the podcast, uh, there are some slides that will be made available for you to uh, so you can uh, you can see what uh, those here can see on the screen. Um, so, the the question came from um, something that happened a bit early this year. There was an interesting news article that you might remember um, about something the Pope said in an um, off-the-record interview that he did. Um, he has a journalist friend called Eugenio Scalfari, um, who he often does interviews with, um, which apparently aren't recorded or written down at the time. And then whenever they're published, um, often with unusual or controversial things, um, which the Pope has apparently said, uh, the, the, the Catholic Church then has to come out and say, uh, try to, of course, state that he would never say anything like that. It's kind of very strange, very unusual. So in the most recent one of these, or certainly it was um, earlier this year, there's maybe been other ones since, um, it was an article in the La Repubblica newspaper where Mr. Scalfari claimed that Pope Francis had told him that bad souls are not punished and that a hell doesn't exist. He was then said to say that those who, um, those who repent obtain God's forgiveness and take their place among the ranks of those who contemplate him, but that those who do not repent and cannot be forgiven uh, just disappear. He says a hell doesn't exist. The disappearance of sinning souls exists. Um, and of course, the, church, the response from the Catholic Church was to simply state that the Church's teachings affirm the existence of hell and its, um, and its eternity. So, putting to one side for the moment the reason why someone like the Pope would want to be interviewed by someone who might quote him as saying things that he either didn't say or that he perhaps shouldn't be saying, um, I don't really want to dwell too much on that, but to perhaps take a step back and ask a few questions ourselves. So, first of all, what is the church's stance on hell? Well, a simplified version of the traditional view of what happens after death, as far as a lot of mainstream Christian churches goes, although it's perhaps not as prevalent as it used to be, is that after you die, you will be judged and then sent to heaven if, you, if you've been good, or to hell if you've been bad. The traditional view of hell, um, the one that's been visually at least around since medi medieval times, is that those who reject God and who choose to serve only themselves will be consigned to live forever in pain and suffering, being tortured by the devil in a place called hell, a dark underground place full of fire and brimstone. And there are very often vivid images of this around, um, especially in churches like this one, actually. Um, this is um, a church in Florence, in Italy, uh, that I was uh, lucky enough to visit a few years ago. Uh, it's called the Duomo. Um, and uh, inside, the, um, inside the dome that you can see on, on the picture here, um, there is a, a painting right up on the inside. Um, and there's some pretty gruesome images on that, which I'll show you now. Um, this is from a fresco called The Last Judgment by F Federico Zaccari. It was painted in 1579, um, and still this is so often the, the prevalent image of hell as taught by churches and believed by many Christians. Um, so why is that? 
and how much of this is actually taken from the Bible rather than just from man's own imagination. So before we look into where all these gruesome ideas about suffering forever in hell have come from, we first of all need to tackle the question of what sort of a nature man has and what this means when death happens. The the prevalent view in Christianity is that all humans have a soul which carries on living after death. And if that's the case, then we have to start by looking at that concept logically. Because if there is such a thing as the immortal soul, then the following must be true. Everyone who dies actually stays alive and is conscious away from their body. That judgment has to happen immediately after death. That everyone has to be kept alive somewhere, whether or not they have been accepted by God. And wherever these souls end up, they have to stay immortal, even if they've lived totally immoral lives. And it's because of this, in essence, that there has to be somewhere for those who have died to keep on living. And so for those found worthy, heaven apparently awaits them. But for those who aren't worthy of being rewarded by God, well, it needs to be somewhere else, of course. And that is, I guess, where the concept of hell, as it is commonly understood, comes in. We as Christadelphians don't believe that the Bible teaches that there is such a thing as an immortal soul at all. And actually the concept is likely to have developed out of philosophy instead. The Bible lays out right from the beginning that the nature of man is mortal. We, like Adam, are of the ground, made of natural things like dust. And we therefore go back to the ground after we die. Genesis 3 verse 19 says, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The word soul, however, muddies the water slightly, because it is said so often that when our body dies, our soul carries on living. And certainly the word soul does appear quite a lot in the Bible, although in some more modern translations it appears slightly less so. But for versions in the Bible that the word does appear, it's very often contrary to the way that the word is so often understood. So this verse here in Ezekiel 18 verse 4 is very clear. The soul who sins shall die. And of course, the soul that sins, which we all do, shall die, as indeed we all will. <coughs> Read in this way, you have to ask what the difference is between the soul and the body. The word soul here is the Hebrew word nephesh, which is used throughout the Old Testament and doesn't always get translated as soul. It's, it's also turned into many other English words such as life, person, beast or animal, heart, mind, body, etc. It's true that because of the beliefs many have about the soul being something separate from, from the body that carries on living, we can use the word soul in everyday language even today to denote some sort of, sorry, denote some sort of unique characteristic about a person such as the joy or the disdain that they might have for how they live their own life out. We may even talk about the soul of some particularly famous person, such as a, a musician or author, living on in the way that others have adopted their way of life. But ultimately, we mostly use these as highly metaphorical terms rather than being literal. I guess we might use the word soul as a way of describing someone's personality, 
something unique about them which sets them apart from others. But when we get to the cold light of day, the Bible puts it very straight indeed. Especially in this verse here in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. So we're left in no doubt in this verse that once someone dies, there is nothing left away from the body to carry on living other than their memory in the lives of others who are left behind. But of course, if that was that, well, there would be no hope for the future at all. And so the Bible being clear that death means death still gives, very, still gives us hope, which we'll come to shortly. So if there's no eternal soul and no hell, as I've claimed, and as we'll go into more detail shortly, then where did these ideas come from? Well, as I've already suggested, it appears that Greek philosophy has an awful lot to do with it. Um, so I put up a slide of, um, of a map of Hades, um, and we'll go into that shortly. Plato, who lived around 400 BC, believed believed in this idea of of um, a place where people go when they die. Um, it was very important in the Greek culture and continued on into the deep thinkers of Roman times too. That the, These ideas carried on into the psyche of the Roman Empire. The idea of an underworld, a place where people went after death, and it was very much prevalent in those days. And aspects of that culture still exist today, as we know a lot about the names of the various gods they had, such as Hades, the god of all the underworld. And um, sometimes the name given to the actual underworld itself, as shown in this, in this map here. Um, they believed that all of the dead went to this underworld, with different areas of it being allocated to different people, depending on how they had been judged to live their life. The most rewarded, the heroes, went to their equivalent of heaven, which is called the Elysian Fields, um, and is incidentally better known to you as perhaps um, in the French Champs-Élysées, which is the name of a very famous road of street in, in France. Um, there was also at the other end of the scale Tartarus, you can see right at the bottom of this map, um, which is said to be far beneath the underworld, as the, as the earth was beneath the sky. And it's where the dead were punished for their sins. And you also get from this period in time great legendary stories with characters such as Persephone, Hermes, Orpheus. The Greeks could certainly tell a good story uh, about their dozens or even hundreds of gods. And this all helped their, their ideas to stick with them. And as with many things deeply ingrained in a culture, it was hard to shift. And so it was with the arrival of the new Christian religion. The old never really went away. It was simply reinvented and eventually incorporated into Christianity. By the end of the second century AD, when Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity and it subsequently became, became the state religion, these ideas were really starting to become a part of how Christianity was at that time. It all culminated in the concept of endless conscious torment, stated by Augustine in 430 AD. That was when it was brought into general acceptance by the Catholic Church in the Western world. 
Augustine taught that all souls were deathless, and subsequently the lost, in other words those who weren't rewarded by God, would experience endless fires of punishment immediately upon the end of their lives. And it's thought that this that, that at least part of the idea of punishment by fire came from the fact that prior to Christianity being the state religion, Christians were very often burnt to death for, for their beliefs. And so it seemed fitting to them that those doing the killing would themselves be subject to the same method of torture. And yet when we go back to first century, the first century when Jesus taught and when Paul preached, these things were definitely not part of their faith at all. Yet, when we read our Bibles, certainly in older translations anyway, we still get the word hell mentioned, along with certain words and phrases, um, in every version about fire and such like, which could suggest that hell is in fact real. Um, I've put up some images on here, um, which shows how um, many Christians talk about it in these days too. I'm not intending on directly answering any of these in the short time that we, that we have together, um, I just want to have a, a, a quick look through and show you a broad view of what we as Christadelphians believe the Bible says about it. In the King James Version, the word hell is used a lot. But when you use more modern versions of the Bible, it is very often replaced with the phrase the grave. The version I tend to use most these days, the ESV, the English Standard Version, tends to quite often use what might be a strange word, sheol. And actually, that is a direct translation from the Hebrew, and suggests that the translators were, were perhaps struggling to find an English word with which they felt would be best used for translation purposes. Psalm 88 is a good part of the Bible to look at in regard to this subject, because it is written in a poetical way and so uses a lot of different words to mean the same thing. And as you can see in the title heading of the psalm, it's written by someone called Heman the Ezraite. And I'm just going to read the, um, the, just these six verses from this psalm. It says, A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choirmaster, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a maskil of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. That word there is the word Sheol. If you're reading from the King James, King James Version, you'll notice it doesn't use the word hell on this occasion. It says the grave. This is perhaps... This perhaps suggests that the translators were uncomfortable using the word hell in this chapter. It was inappropriate when this was clearly a righteous man who was perhaps in a depressed state, talking about his own death. And yet they did in other parts, suggesting that they were in some way showing bias about how they translated. And unfortunately this is a trait that we have to put up with an awful lot of Bible translations, both old and modern ones. So carrying on reading from verse 4. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. 
You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. The other similar words here, such as pit, grave, dark region, etc., are all different Hebrew words, but are used interchangeably here. In other words, they all mean the same thing. They are all ultimately the place where we are laid to rest at death. Incidentally, if that psalm is a bit too dark, you only need to jump to the next psalm, Psalm 89, written by the same man, to get a much more positive spin on his relationship with God and his hope for the future. And having these two psalms together shows to me that the Bible is a very very honest book showing what humans are like, that we all have good and bad times, and God chose to preserve this for us to read today, because we are ultimately no different. So I think that the vast majority of times when the word hell or shale is used in the Old Testament, it can fairly easily be understood as meaning the grave. And yet there are some verses which may present a problem. So let's have a look at a few of those. Deuteronomy 32 verse 22 is an interesting one. It says, For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depth of shale, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. One thing that's very important to understand when reading the Bible is to get the context of a verse by reading the surrounding verses. And when you look at the preceding verses, you get the impression of a God angry with his people because they had gone after other gods and had disobeyed him. And one Bible version which I really like because of its extensive notes is the the, the NET, the New English Translation. And its notes for the word Sheol here say the following. It says, Sheol refers here not to hell and hellfire, a much later concept, but to the innermost parts of the earth, as low down as one could get. These are mainstream Christian Bible commentators, and they are acknowledging that this can't be talking here about a place which many imagine hell to be. There are many other there are many other verses in the Old Testament which perhaps need explaining, and you can of course speak to me afterwards about those. But hopefully, with the vast majority being simply explained by it talking about the grave, it becomes easier to rest easy and not be concerned that I'm trying to conceal from you the truth about hell. We haven't talked about the New Testament yet, which was written in Greek. And there are two equivalent words to the Hebrew shale in the Greek. First of all, we have Hades, which takes us right back to that culture of the underworld and the gods of that time, which seems unusual, but we'll have a closer look in just a few minutes at what, why this might be. The other um, commonly used word, however, is Gehenna. And this is a very interesting word to have been chosen by the writers. And I want to have a look at this one right away. Because it's generally the word used when the Bible talks about hellfire. Have a look at Mark chapter 9. Um, it's um, it's, a, it's a, a, a chapter where the ESV translates the word as hell. But also misses out a couple of verses about worms which are left in the King James Version. So I'm going to read um, Mark chapter 9 from verse 43. It says... If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, a surface reading of that passage might leave you thinking that hell is a very real place. But actually, Gehenna refers to, or certainly suggested that it could refer to a very much real place. Very, a real place that Jesus and his disciples could have visited whenever they wanted. On the slide here is a, a picture of the Valley of Hinnom. It's just south of Jerusalem. And it was apparently a rubbish dump um, for all the unwanted things to be burned for all to see. And apparently even criminals were burnt there. And it appears that Jesus may have been using this, this example as a very graphic way of teaching his followers a lesson. Not that they were in danger of being burned in hell forever, but that if they didn't turn to God and purge their lives of things which caused them to sin, then there would be no hope for them other than being treated like a piece of rubbish or a criminal once they died, rather than the alternative that the passage mentioned, to enter into the kingdom of God, a concept which I'll, I'll talk about shortly. So let's ha now have a, 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 a look at the other Greek word, Hades. Some parts of the Old Testament are quoted in the New Testament when the Hebrew word Sheol gets translated into Greek and becomes Hades. Again, there are some awkward verses which need a bit of explaining, but I just want to focus on one verse for the moment, which hopefully shows quite categorically, to me at least, that hell as a place of eternal torment cannot be real. It's in Revelation chapter 20, and it's in verse 13 and 14. Um, and you'll notice here that the, the ESV again uses the actual word untranslated, Hades, rather than the word hell. So Revelation chapter 20, reading from verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were, who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now, as far as I'm concerned, these verses totally contradict hell or Hades as a literal place, because we're told that at a certain point in the future to the writer, Hades gave up its dead. And those dead were then judged according to what they had done. And this goes against what so many say, that judgment occurs before people are sent to hell, never to leave it again. Um, and it makes more sense to read hell or Hades beer here as being the grave, and that Hades giving up its dead simply refers to resurrection. And that leads us nicely on to looking at what will happen in the future. Because as we've said so far, because all we've said so far is that the final destination of mankind is the grave, rather than being in heaven or hell. And if that were all we had to hope for, then there would probably be little, very little point in Christianity as a religion. And that's, that's not just my opinion. It's the opinion given by the Apostle Paul as well. So we're going to have a look at this chapter here, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, here Paul talks about the resurrection from the dead, stemming from the very start of this religion, when Jesus was raised from the dead by God. 
Paul was contesting with some who were saying that the resurrection wasn't something which would happen to mankind at all. And he counters this very directly. And I'm going to read from verse 12. He says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. There's clearly an awful lot to take in in those few verses. But what he appears to be saying is that Christ's resurrection wasn't a one-off, but it was the firstfruits of a resurrection in the future in which all who follow him and in fact, elsewhere, it is suggested that anyone responsible for judgment, too, will be raised from the dead. In fact, those who are currently dead and are awaiting judgment are talked about here as being asleep. It's there in verse 20. This isn't a literal sleep, but it shows that those of us who have a hope of resurrection are as likely to wake up in the future as any of us who go to bed at night. Paul doesn't talk in this passage about judgment, but there is a verse in the Old Testament which shows us how this fits into things, and it's in Daniel chapter 2. If you think about the concept of death being asleep, then this verse meshes so nicely with that that it's very hard to ignore in the context of what we're thinking about today. Daniel chapter 2, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And this suggests that many people will be resurrected by God at some time in the future, and that after being raised, some will be granted eternal life, and others won't. This points to a future judgment, not a judgment which happens immediately upon someone dying. We looked earlier at this idea of the kingdom of God being a future place, for those who conquer sin. And this is our future hope. This is the culmination of God's plan and purpose with mankind. God wants people to turn to him in sincerity and truth. This is the carrot's approach to getting people into his kingdom. Yet the idea of a hell where people are told that unless they repent, um, they're told that unless they repent that they are going to hell, means that for a lot of people, they are going down the stick approach for fear of what could happen otherwise. And quite frankly, this, is, this has throughout the centuries caused millions of Christians to only be so because of shame, because they are so frightened by the graphic depictions of hell 
that they feel like they have no choice but to follow Jesus. For anyone who doesn't want to follow Jesus or obey God, well, that's their choice. And I don't think God would want them to only turn to him for fear of being tortured and burned alive for the whole of eternity. He only wants them if they are genuine in their desire to be in his kingdom. And if not, then death will be the end. And in my opinion, even if they are raised and judged as unworthy, God has no desire to see anyone suffer other than seeing what they have missed out on. Which, to be honest, will probably be heartbreaking enough as it is. But for many churches, especially those back in the Middle Ages who demanded that all people turn to, turn to Christianity to convert, this was all part of their power over people's lives. And of course, their ability to make money off them too. So to go back to what I said right at the start about the Pope's apparent thoughts on hell. Well, perhaps he aligns a bit closer to being a Christadelphian, on this subject at least. This is undoubtedly why his church is trying to dismiss what he said. Because for them, this is an attempt to still have control over the lives of its members all over the world. One thing I've not touched on today, but that it's worth considering, is that for so many, their current lives could be described as being a sort of hell. Um, and I've just put on the screen a couple of notable examples. Um, there is the, the example of um, child abuse, which is described as being a living hell. And then there is the, um, the problem um, specifically here of, um, of uh, uh, people, people being killed by firearms in the USA. Um, these are just two examples. I'm sure we can, between ourselves, think of many, many others of of real genuine problems in the world that could be described as being a living hell for people who are around. Um, sin reigns supreme in the earth. A man can be so cruel in order to selfishly gain money and control. We don't need any vision of a future hell to shock us. We have a vision of it right here before our very faces. And I would suggest that Christians have a duty to make things just a little bit more bearable in this current world, whilst we look forward to the kingdom to come. So, to conclude, Christadelphians have no desire to scare anyone into accepting the gospel and to follow Jesus. But instead, we want to show that the gospel offers real hope for the future, a future in which there is no suffering, no death, and is about as far away from from hell as it's possible to be. Thank you.